This is Katherine Cunningham, and you are listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast. Today is June 5th, World Environment Day. And to celebrate, we are featuring the conversation I had with M. Sanjen on how to construct a good new deal with nature. M. Sanjen is the CEO of Conservation International, and he joins us to share with us CI's dedication to protecting nature for the benefit of all. Nature as a source of food, of fresh water, livelihoods, and a stable climate. M. Sanjen, welcome. So Conservation International focuses on how humans connect to nature. And in your mission statement, you say, we know that human beings are totally dependent on nature. My question is, can you elaborate a bit on your mission statement and how it's evolved? We need nature because we're really working for our own human health. So the health and nature connection, if you can elaborate on that. Sure. How that's important. So thank you for having me on here today. Uh, so really simply, we try to protect that part of nature that's of most value, relevance, importance, love for people. That's, I think, a little bit of a distinction that we have. Look, I came to this because I love nature. And for me, protecting it all is really what I want. But in the places that we work, in Liberia, in Brazil, in Colombia, in Indonesia, in China, in some of the small islands of the Pacific, which have large ocean domains like the Cook Islands, love alone is not enough. We really need to be able to talk about nature in a way that is relevant to people's lives. Because at the end of the day, we want nature to be protected long after we're gone. And it'll happen only if local people do it, in the words of our founder, in their own enlightened self-interest. That's why at Conservation International we have this link between saving nature and saving nature for humanity. At the end of the day, I genuinely believe that you know, this is not just about polar bears or lions or tigers or elephants or whatever you might imagine nature really is. It really is about saving ourselves. And nothing could have made that really more clear than being at this particular World Economic Forum in 2019 in Davos. That's been a bit of a surprise. You know, I think for decades, environmentalists have been going to these meetings and we felt sidelined. We were basically, initially we were standing on the sidewalk, then we were allowed into the entrance, then we were maybe allowed into some spaces. But now what's interesting is the people who run these meetings, who are part of this and been part of this community for much longer than we have, the CEOs of major companies, presidents and prime ministers of some countries, really have really adopted this language and really are making this transformation and I think in a very genuine way with the realization that unless they save nature their businesses their countries are in trouble. And why do you think that they're coming to this sort of environmental stewardship realization? Do you think really sure. that we're, we're at this this crisis moment where we're starting to look at our natural capital and say, my gosh, our businesses are built on these raw resources. So now we really need to think about how we're protecting our assets and look at how our communities where we're sourcing our materials, how they're being affected by devastated natural disasters. I know earlier we were talking about the global risk report that yeah. the World Economic Forum puts out every year. And top of the line this year and looking at risk, the likelihood of risks and as well as the impact on humanity were extreme weather events and climate change. Exactly. Even loss of biodiversity is there. So the top right quadrant where you don't want to be in terms of risk and impact is dominated by environmental issues. So I think part of it is exactly what you said. If you are a global company and you're 
selling to seven plus billion people, then sustainability equals availability. You really do worry about where water is going. You do end up having to worry about where the trash ends up going, right? Uh, the CEO, the new incoming CEO of, of Unilever yesterday, quite stunningly made the comment about what he doesn't want to be is a company that represents littered brand. So basically, you go down the beach, you look at all that plastic litter, and you start naming Unilever products. That's not what he wants to see. So part of it is this realization on a world of 7 billion, sustainable equals availability. The other part about it is it really is social license to operate. I think millennials are far more choosy, far more thoughtful. Where they work, who they support, can turn on a dime. And it's up to these CEOs to make sure that their values are front and center of these companies. That's part one. I think part two is exactly what the risk report said. In the history of humanity, we've never faced anything like this before. Not wars, not famines. It's very difficult to understand because it's global awareness of a global challenge that cannot really be fixed in our generation, whose impacts will only get worse with time. What's unusual today is also we understand the timeline to have meaningful action on climate change is now about a decade. doesn't mean the world blows up in, in 10, 12 years and all life on Earth disappears and humans are done. It doesn't mean that. But it means that the path that we're on, that we are setting, the trajectory as a species that we're setting, gets determined in the next 10 years. And this is what Johan Rockström was emphasizing in his global report and in the Exponential Climate Action Roadmap is that we're living in this hyperloop of global experience, a paradigm where the Earth conditions are in a fixed trajectory. And yet if we continue to create positive feedback loops outside this trajectory, then we're going to start seeing the system change completely and very rapidly. And you can't put it That's back. That's the thing. As ecosystems unravel, uh, Attenborough said this, and Johan Rockström, who's also chief scientist for Conservation International, he's made this amazing point that as these systems unravel, no amount of money or ingenuity on our part can put it back. So it's a remarkable moment that we're in. And I think Davos is appreciating that. I think Professor Schwab going up there and saying the first working session of Davos, we're going to open with the Duke of Cambridge and David Attenborough in a conversation, just may sent a strong signal. The first session I went to was Doug McMillan of Walmart talking about their one gigaton challenge and about sustainability and about the environment. It was McKellen, the CEO of Cargill. It's the new CEO coming in of Unilever, who was incredibly forceful about the stance of their company when it comes to the environment. It, it, it almost is like they've taken our playbook and they're repeating it from a platform and a stage that I am slightly envious about and really, really happy about. Oh, extraordinary. I mean, you should feel very complimented in all the, the decades of work that the environmental and scientific community has put in to really understand this issue and bring to the forefront some common understanding yes. of what is actually happening in the IPCC reports that have constantly confirmed and reaffirmed with thousands of scientists working on separate research projects. This is the issue of our lifetime, yes. know, climate change and biodiversity loss, ecosystem integrity unraveling. They wouldn't have the playbook unless organizations like Conservation International existed to put us in this position to be able to respond. In responding and, and companies really taking action, 
How important is social media and getting that story right and making sure that fake news doesn't infiltrate your message? How important is that? I think you've come up with a really, really great point. I expect it's really important. The problem is our experience with it is about as long as a gnat's life on earth, very, very short, because it's such a new media for everyone. And we too are wrestling with how that all works out and how that plays out. What I do know when it comes to companies, I think they not only have a responsibility to respond to their consumers, like providing them with choice and give them the data, they also need to lead a little bit and they need to play a part. Companies are better than anyone else at selling stuff. They need to sell the environment a little bit. And I think they need to do that using good science and using good examples and stories. They're a little reluctant to do that right now. If you really go and look at web pages of many companies and look at the environment stuff, it's buried. And yet many of them are doing more than what most consumers know of that company. I think they need to be much more further forward. I think that reluctance is there for a variety of reasons. They need to be further forward in telling that story. I think this idea that if you're a good company, let's take the oil and gas sector. We're engaged with them. I just had a fantastic meeting with a senior leader from Shell, for example. That's really unusual, sitting in an environment group and an oil and gas company having a very positive, constructive dialogue. But oil and gas companies can no longer support organizations, fake organizations essentially, that are undermining the climate message or undermining climate science. So you cannot play both sides of that. Says you or says them? Says me. I think some companies have taken a strong stance saying we're not going to fund them anymore. I believe Shell is, think Shell has done that. I think BP has done that. I think BHP has definitely done that. But I really do want to see oil and gas companies, while they're engaging with the environmental movement and understanding climate change is real and working to reduce emissions, Shell has taken a very strong position on reducing emissions. Not just their emissions, but also the emissions of all the products that they're coming out from how you're using oil and gas. You cannot do that and then support fake news. I think the environmental community needs to call that out when you see it. And I think that history is going to catch up with companies very, very quickly. On that note, do you feel that as we're reaching a climate tipping point, the biodiversity tipping point, do you feel like we're also reaching a tipping point with these oil and gas companies who have, by the way, a number of technologies in renewable energies? I know BP and Shell and others have uh, different biofuels, third generation algae. Are they ready to go to deploy these new alternative? I don't think anyone is ready to deploy alternatives at scale. And it's still a minuscule part of the business. So they all get it that they want to be in the energy business. They want to be relevant to your lives. They want to make your life easy. There's still room and growth for oil and gas without a doubt because a lot of the world does live in real energy poverty. The new technology is clearly there. It'll come. It'll be adopted. But at this point, still the best mechanism we have to absorb carbon dioxide is tropical forests, forests in general. So here's the interesting thing, if you do the math, we need to take about 40 gigatons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere every year if we're going to reach emissions neutrality, say by 2050. Of that, about 10 gigatons currently comes from the destruction of tropical forests. 10 gigatons. Yes. So if tropical forest emissions was a country, it would be just behind China. It'd be the US, China, Tropical forest deforestation. And that's insane. Think about in the modern world, we're still burning biological storehouses that have been around forever, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. We're still burning them and we're still destroying them. We're not using land efficiently. We're not restoring them at scale, certainly not in tropical systems. So for Conservation International, we know that 10 gigatons, about 30% of the climate solution has to come from protecting forests, particularly tropical forests. We want to take a slice of that pie and say we are going to be responsible for trying to push that through.
Now, some companies have also done that. Walmart, for example, has their one gigaton challenge. They say, we're going to be responsible for taking one gigaton out, working with all our suppliers. And tropical forest is part of that equation. So the point here is that we need to make sure that tropical forest, the conservation and restoration of tropical forest is front and center as a great return on investment when it comes to mitigating the planet from climate change. You know, I think what we were trying to do at the Climate Summit in California is bring nature to the table and make sure that people understand if nature is destroyed, none of this will really actually matter at the end of the day. If you had a moment with the new president of Brazil, Bolsonaro, what would you say to him about how one could go about, in, in real terms, advancing your nature solution forest protection agenda? I haven't met President Bolsonaro, but I did have the chance to speak with the governor of Sao Paulo, enormous province, enormous city, and a very pro-business, anti-bureaucracy sort of governor. And one of our board members is deeply involved in, a, in BTG Pactual, one of the uh, big banks in Brazil. This is the message I gave to them, which would be very similar to what I would say to President Bolsonaro. He's a pro-business president. That's certainly one of the platforms that he ran on. Brazil sits on the biggest source of fresh water on the planet. Brazil sits on the biggest store of carbon in the planet. Brazil sits on the greatest density of biodiversity on the planet. These are three things that will only become more and more valuable with time. Do not underestimate the value that it actually provides to companies, to businesses, to the general economy. The challenge is how do you properly value it and how do you incorporate it into the valuation system of the country? He's got a very, very smart finance minister who is a University of Chicago guy, quite famous economist. It really is up to the smart individuals to really think about it. When I talk about nature, I talk about it in terms of love. That's all I know what to do. I love it. But I think for many people on the planet, and I think in Brazil, where there are lots of pressing issues at hand, it has to be couched in the language of value. So what I would say to the president is, you're sitting on pretty much the most valuable asset this planet needs and is going to need. And every company that's operating there is going to need that license to operate in a global system. Protecting nature, protecting forests, protecting indigenous people, protecting the coastlines of Brazil is going to give those companies a strategic advantage in being able to sell to the rest of the world. And there are economic opportunities in managing sustainable forests. Completely. So I think that's what really we could emphasize is that you have sustainable forest agriculture in an integrated way. Well, share with us. Better land use. There's plenty of land in Brazil that really needs to be restored. Mm -hmm. We're doing a massive restoration project there at Mm -hmm. scale, involving hundreds, if not thousands, of local people and local communities, indigenous people, in that restoration effort. It's the largest tropical restoration project in the world, really. So how we restore tropical forests is going to be a huge concern for the planet. How we protect them and how we monetize that protection so that nature pays or conservation pays for itself in some ways is going to be important. Look, we just did a deal in a neighboring country in Colombia with Apple. So Apple worked with us to protect about 30,000 acres of coastline mangroves on the coast of Colombia. Very dense in carbon, incredibly important to the local communities who live there who need that buffer from the ocean, but also use it for fish and other things, right? So it's an incredible habitat, very valuable for the community, but dense, dense, dense in carbon, about the equivalent of about 250,000 cars with this one deal from Apple. We could do that up and down the coast of 
Brazil. What do you mean the equivalent of? So if cars? that mangrove was destroyed, it would release the emissions of about 250,000 cars in a year. Mangrove. By protecting it and restoring it, we basically are capturing carbon in a very high return on investment sort of proposition. So you're capturing carbon, you're providing a livelihood for people, you're yep. providing jobs, yep. you're creating a natural buffer for the ocean to protect the communities along the shore. Increasing fisheries and Amazing. giving Apple a really good vehicle we call it blue carbon, by which they can offset some of their emissions. Win, right? win, 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 win. Exactly. We could do that in Brazil. We could <laughs> do things like that in Brazil, and that's what I would want his team. What I understand from him is that he's got a very technocratic team, a team who really sort of understands issues and topics. I'd want them to look into it, and I'd want them to look for the big solutions that they can apply, given that they're sitting on the biggest resources of water, of biodiversity, of carbon, and of indigenous communities, all of which are unfortunately too rare on the planet. Right. Who, by the way, are the perfect community to employ for these ventures because they have such a keen understanding of the natural constraints of the very local environment. They potentially understand where new business opportunities exist as well. Yes. And their mentality is one of sustaining. And on often the, the best stewards of, of nature, you know, they, because they're intimately dependent on it. And that gives them a credible reason, I guess, to steward it. Beautiful. Let's just do a, a quick little sure. pivot to Peter Selgman, who sure. was your former CEO for Conservation International, who now leads a new initiative to help give voice to indigenous cultures. You know, Peter's kind of one of these legendary conservation leaders, right? He, he founded this organization like 32 years ago. It should have remained a small org like many others, but it grew. And really it grew because of the board and because of his work and the people he surrounded himself with in the organization. So no small task. And I honestly, having done this job now for a little bit under two years, I'm blown away by the fact that he managed to do it for 30 years. You know, it's a big, big lift. He's got tons of energy. He's very active on our board. He's a great mentor and advisor to me. But one of the things that he's very passionate about is this realization that some of the biggest, wildest places on the planet are really in the hands of indigenous communities. And they have too often been seen as on the other side of the barrier with conservationists. And that's just really a very false dichotomy, like many of them. We, because we are founding partner, we, along with the MacArthur Foundation, the Emerson Collective, the Mulaga Foundation, and a few really notable voices from the indigenous community, founded this new organization called Neotero. And Neotero's mission is to enhance, preserve the knowledge base of indigenous communities and give them the tools and the capacity to steward land that is increasingly under threat, land and water that is increasingly under threat, but that are intimately tied to their culture, their knowledge, their wisdom, and their survival. Let's just dive into the ocean for a moment and give the ocean environment a voice. When was it in this past year, it seems, where ocean sort of came on, on the agenda? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that certainly in Davos, the two big issues that you see on the environmental side is climate change and you see oceans. I think Mark Benioff and WEF have really done a pretty amazing job, John Kerry, of really putting oceans on the map you know, in these forums, which has really driven it uh, in a long way. Plastics is, is sort of interesting because, look, when I was a kid 40 years ago, I remember the issue of plastics. I remember seeing plastic on the beaches in Sri Lanka and kind of wondering why and questioning it, even the realization that this was a bad thing. It's kind of stunning that in the last two years, it's just sort of rocketed 
into public consciousness, where bars in Washington, D.C. don't serve plastic straws. Well, we don't use single-use plastics in our office, for example, but we're an environmental group. You might expect that. What you're seeing on airlines, just seeing that awareness grow right. has been remarkable. S.C. Johnson, there's a big alliance now for plastics. A lot of companies are getting in on it and understanding it's not as simple as going out and then collecting it. We still know very little about the oceans. And if you think the terrestrial systems are well protected, we have only really managed to protect maybe 4%, depends how you count, of the surface of the ocean. Effectively protected. Marine protectors, but also other areas that are effectively managed. Even if you think about just places that are really thoughtfully managed from even multiple use, you're still talking about single-digit protection. There's a goal, a global goal, to try to get to about 30% of the ocean effectively protected by 2030. That's a massive, massive lift. It'll put everything we've done on land order of magnitude harder because we know less, because the rules on how the oceans are governed are still weak, because many of the countries that have gigantic oceans tend to be tiny island nations without a lot of political power or friends. So you have this challenge, and right. we want to step right into it. For Conservation International, being able to effectively double how much is effectively managed, not just marine protected areas, but also fisheries management areas, areas at scale where we're thinking about how to make sure it's sustainable in the long run is hugely important. Getting rid of poor fishing practices, particularly around slavery and indentured servitude on fishing boats, making sure that when you go and buy, say, tuna, that you know is ecologically safe, it's also socially safe as well, uh, which there isn't a safeguard on that. That's really important. And then the last one, which is what I mentioned, blue carbon. I think there's a huge market potential for that. You know, this is mangrove seagrass beds. The ocean can store carbon and can do it at a dense, carbon-dense way. Here's the shocking picture about funding for ocean conservation. If you look at private money going into ocean conservation, that sort of philanthropical money, foundation money that goes into ocean conservation, dedicated towards expanding our conservation at scale, it's less than the marketing budget for, say, a Marvel movie. I'm not even saying the movie. I'm saying the marketing budget of it. It is unbelievable how small that is relative to how much wealth there is on the planet and how much attention the oceans really do deserve. Believe me, we are a long, long, long way from creating enough momentum on the funding side. GF, under the new sort of GEF projects, does have oceans as a strong focus, and it's huge. And there are countries, Norway, Sweden, Germany, and others that are playing a big role in ocean conservation. But we still need a lot, lot more private funding and corporate attention going towards oceans. And not just plastics. Marine protected areas and effectively managed marine areas are really, really important and still represent only a tiny fraction of the surface area of the planet. There is a real need to work with others to create momentum towards being able to fulfill some of these obligations that countries are making. Here's the amazing thing on oceans. If you go back 20 years ago, 25 years ago, there were really only two countries who really thought about managing their oceans or protecting them at scale, so large-scale ocean conservation, the U.S. and Australia. Mm -hmm. The U.S. with the Hawaiian Papahana Umuakokea, you know, the northern Hawaiian islands, Australia with Great Barrier Reef. That's what was in our minds. Today, there are dozens and dozens of countries, including Indonesia, but also smaller countries like the Cooks or Kiribati or Palau. Yep, exactly. Fiji. Who hosted the climate change Exactly. And Colombia and Brazil. Brazil very recently declared a new marine protected area. Costa Rica wants to expand one of its classic marine protected areas. Ecuador, the Galapagos. Uh, Absolutely. Ecuador did that uh, last year. 
year, Colombia created a brand new spec. Kind of like the Galapagos version for Colombia called Mapello again last year. So country after country. This is where governments have been actually interesting. They've sort of seen what's going on and they're willing to set aside oceans for active conservation and management. The problem is there's not enough science, there's not enough funding, there's not enough technology, there's not enough business models that are being put to work to make sure these things you know, stand the test of time. So what I'd love to see us do is help these countries, the ones that are already willing to set up the political boundaries, to actually manage these oceanscapes sustainably in the long run and derive benefits for their people. Because if we can do that, then these things will last and they will succeed and they will grow. If they don't, they will be an experiment that we will quickly tire off and move off. It'd be, it'd be like John Muir going to Yosemite, coming back and telling us about the glory of it, and everyone in the U.S. saying, oh, we don't really care, and, you know, that's it. I'm at this moment where, for some amazing reason, political leaders have, to some extent, have made the leap into ocean conservation. Now it is up to us in the conservation community, in the science community, in the business community, to step up to the plate and make sure that the commitments they've made are held, they're enforced, and they can derive benefits for their people. I'm Sanjan, in front of us here, has been working in Conservation International, and all these different initiatives coming from a point of passion and love, connection to nature. And he said, the most important thing you can do is actually to go out and enjoy nature and make that connection and don't lose that joy and wonder of being a child. I can say that that mindset shift is that when we operate from this point of joy and love and you know, true compassion and concern for the people and the environment that we love, we protect that which we love. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really lovely to have you. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Please visit our website at naturalintelligence.com to find our growing gallery of podcast interviews and the links of our guests to their important work in the world. Thank you and have a great day.